Chapter Seven of Weapons of Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Weapons of Mystery by Joseph Hocking. Chapter Seven. Drearwater Pond. I will not try to describe my walk back to Temple Hall or tell of the terrible sensations that I felt think if you can of my position a young man of thirty a slave to a deep designing villain held fast in his power by some secret nervous or brain forces which he possessed more than this he had designs upon the woman I loved while I was powerless nay worse than powerless for he might make me do things which would be altogether opposed to what I believed right and true when you realize this you will be able to form some idea of how I felt and yet I was not altogether without hope I felt that life and love of Liberty were strong in me and I determined that though I might be conquered it should not be without a struggle arriving at the house I saw Simon Slowden he evidently had a message for me for making a sign for me to stop he quickly came to my side your nag is saddled sir he said I caught his meaning instantly which way did they go and how long have they been gone I asked they've gone to Drearwater Pond Yarner. started about half an hour ago any message for me the governor told me if I saw you to tell you where they'd gone who went with mr. Temple miss gray and the other lady your honor he had led out the horse by this time and I was preparing to mount it when I saw that he had something more to communicate what is it Simon I said he did not speak but winked slyly at me and then led the horse away from the stable yard as he did so I saw Kaffar come away from one of the lads who was employed about the house he's a spy your honor a regular Judas Iscariot t'other chaps called Herod pity this one isn't called Judas they be a bootiful couple your honor he looked round again and then said that murderin wassilatin villain is gone after him mr. Blake he came back just after they'd gone and went ridin after them like greased lightnin for a minute I was stunned I thought I'd better tell ye, your honor then you'd know how to act I thanked Simon heartily then turning my horse's head towards Drearwater Pond I galloped away I had not gone far before I began to question the wisdom of what I was doing was I right in thus openly defying the man who possessed such a terrible power it certainly seemed foolish and yet I could not bear the idea of his being the companion of Gertrude Forrest besides it might stagger him somewhat to find that his words had not frightened me with this thought I gave my horse the rein he was a beautiful high-blooded creature and seemed to delight in making the snow crystals fly around him as he scampered over the frozen ground I do not know the district at all but I had been told in what direction Drearwater Pond lay so I did not doubt that I should easily find them when I came to the spot however those I hoped to find were nowhere to be seen and so guiding the horse up to the dark waters I stood and looked at the little lake that bore such a somber name it was indeed a dreary place on one side was wild moorland and on the other a plantation of firs edged the dismal pond it might be about a quarter of a mile long 
and perhaps one-sixth of a mile wide. There were no houses near, and the high road was some distance away. It was not an attractive place, for several reasons. The region was very drear, and moreover the place had a bad reputation. The pond was said to have no bottom, while a murder having been committed on the moors nearby, the country people said that dark spirits of the dead were often seen to float over the drear waters in the silent night. I stood at the edge of the water for some time, then I quietly led my horse away around to the other side, where dark fir trees made the scene, if possible, more gloomy than it would otherwise have been. I had not been there long before I heard voices, and looking up, I saw the party walking towards me. Evidently they had fastened their horses in the near distance, and were now seeking to better enjoy themselves by walking. As they came near me, I made a slight noise which drew their attention. Certainly I ought to have felt flattered by their greeting, especially by that of Miss Forrest. We thought you'd been bewitched, Mr. Blake, said Miss Gray, after a few trivial remarks had been passed. Perhaps I was, I said, looking at Voltaire. He stared at me as if in wonder, and a curious light played in his eyes. He had uttered no word when he saw me, but he gave indications of his astonishment. Well, continued Miss Gray, this is the proper place to be bewitched. Mr. Temple had been telling some strange stories about it. What was it, Mr. Temple? A red hand appears from the water, and whoever sees it will be led to commit murder? Oh, there are dozens of stories about the place, said Tom. Indeed, there is scarcely a youth or maiden who will be seen here after dark. Why? asked Voltaire suddenly. Oh, as I said just now, it is reported to be haunted. But more than that, the pond is said to have an evil power. Some say that if anyone sees the place for the first time alone, his hands will be red with blood before a month passes away. Then that will refer to me, I said. But surely such nonsense is not believed in now. These things are not nonsense, said Voltaire. Earth and heaven are full of occult forces. I paid no further attention to the subject at the time, but this conversation came back to me with terrible force in the after days. For a while we chatted on ordinary subjects, and then, remounting our horses, we prepared to ride back. During this time I had felt entirely free from any of the strange influences I have described, and I began to wonder at it, especially so as Miss Forrest had voluntarily come to my side, and we had galloped away together. We took a roundabout road to Temple Hall, and so were longer together, and again I was happy. I thought you were not coming, she said. What in the world drew you away so suddenly? I tried to tell her, but I could not. Every time I began to speak of the influence Voltaire had exerted, I was seemingly tongue-tied. No words would come. I was very sorry, I said at length, but you did not want a companion. Mr. Voltaire came. Yes, he overtook us. Is he not a wonderful man? Yes, I said absently. I was so sorry you allowed yourself to be placed under his influence last night. Did you not hear me asking you to avoid having anything to do with him? Yes, I said. I am sorry. I was a coward. I do not understand him, she said. He fascinates while he repels. One almost hates him, and yet one is obliged to admire him. No one would want him as a friend, while to make him an enemy would be terrible. I could not help shuddering as she spoke. I had made him my enemy. 
and the thought was terrible. He does not like you, she went on. He did not like the way you regarded his magical story and his thought reading. Were I you, I should have no further communications with him. I should politely ignore him. I watched her face as she spoke. Surely there was more than common interest betrayed in her voice. Surely that face showed an earnestness beyond the common interest of a passing acquaintance. I do not wish to have anything to do with him, I said. And might I also say something to you? Surely if a man should avoid him, a woman should do so a thousand times more. Promise me to have nothing to do with him. Avoid him as you would a pestilence. I spoke passionately, pleadingly. She turned her head to reply, and I was bending my head so as not to miss a word, when the subtle power seized me. I did not wait for her reply, but turned my head in a different direction. Let us join the others, I stammered with difficulty, and rode away without waiting for her consent. She came up by my side presently, however, but there was a strange look on her face. Disappointment? Astonishment? Annoyance? And hauteur? All were expressed. I spoke not a word, however. I could not. A weight seemed to rest upon me. My free agency was gone. How do you know they are in this direction? She said at length. We have come a circuitous route. They surely are, I said. The words were dragged out of me as if by sheer force of another will, while I looked vacantly before me. Are you well, Mr. Blake? She asked again. You look strange. Well, well, I remember saying. Then we caught sight of three people riding. Hurrah, I cried. There they are. I could see I was surprising Miss Forrest more and more, but she did not speak again. Pride and vexation seemed to overcome her other feelings, and so silently we rode on together until we rejoined our companions. Ha! Justin cried Tom. We did not expect to see you just yet. Surely something's the matter. Oh, no, I replied, when looking at Herod Voltaire, I saw a ghastly smile wreathe his lips, and then I felt my burden gone, evidently by some strange power at which I had laughed. He had again made me obey his will, and when he had got me where he wanted me, he allowed me to be free. No sooner did I feel my freedom than I was nearly mad with rage. I had been with the woman I wanted more than anything else to accompany. We had been engaged in a conversation which was getting more and more interesting for me. And then for no reason save this man's accursed power, I had come back where I had no desire to be. I set my teeth together and vowed to be free. But looking again at Voltaire's eyes, my feelings underwent another revulsion. I trembled like an aspen leaf. I began to dread some terrible calamity. Before me stretched a dark future. I seemed to see rivers of blood, and over them floated awful creatures. For a time I thought I was disembodied, and in my new existence I did deeds too terrible to relate. Then I realized a new experience. I feared Voltaire with a terrible fear. Strange forms appeared to be emitted from his eyes, while to me his form expanded and became terrible in its mane. I knew I was there in a Yorkshire road, riding on a high-blooded horse. I knew the woman I loved was near me, and yet I was living a dual life. It was not Justin Blake who was there, but something else which was called Justin Blake. And the feelings that possessed me were such as I had never dreamed of. And yet I was able to think. I was able to connect cause and effect. 
Indeed, my brain was very active, and I began to reason out why I should be so influenced, and why I should act so strangely. The truth was, and I felt sure of it as I rode along, I was partly mesmerized or hypnotized, whatever men may please to call it. Partly I was master over my actions, and partly I was under an influence which I could not resist. Strange it may appear, but it is still true. And so while one part of my being or self was realizing to a certain extent the circumstances by which I was surrounded, the other enslaved part trembled and feared at some dreadful future and felt bound to do what it would fain resist. This feeling possessed me till we arrived at Temple Hall, when I felt free and as if by the wave of some magical wand, Justin Blake was himself again. Instead of following the ladies into the house, I followed the horses to the stables. I thought I might see Simon Slowden, who I was sure would be my friend, and was watching Kaffar closely. But I could not catch sight of him. Herod Voltaire came up to me, however, and hissed in my ear, Do you yield to my power now? I answered almost mechanically, No. But you will, he went on. You dared to follow me to yonder lake, but you found you could not ride alone with her. How terrible it must be to have to obey the summons of the devil, and so find out the truth, that while two is company, five is none. I began to tremble again. He fixed his terrible eye upon me, and said slowly and distinctly, Justin Blake, resistance is useless. I have spent years of my life in finding out the secrets of life. By pure psychology I have obtained my power over you. You are a weaker man than I, weaker under ordinary circumstances. You would be swayed by my will if I knew no more the mysteries of the mind than you, because as a man I am superior to you, superior in mind and in will force. But by the knowledge I have mentioned I have made you my slave. I felt the truth of his words. He was a stronger man than I naturally, while by his terrible power I was rendered entirely helpless. Still at that very moment the inherent obstinacy of my nature showed itself. I am not your slave, I said. You are, he said. Did you feel no strange influences coming back just now? Was not Herod Voltaire your master? I was silent. Just so, he answered with a smile, and yet I wish to do you no harm. But upon this I do insist. You must leave Temple Hall. You must allow me to woo and win Miss Gertrude Forrest. I never will, I cried. Then said he jeeringly, Your life must be ruined. You must be swept out of the way. And then, as I told you, I will take this dainty duck from you. I will press her rosy lips to mine and... Stop, I cried. Not another word. And seizing him by the collar, I shook him furiously. Speak lightly of her, I continued, and I will thrash you like a dog, as well as that cur who follows at your heels. For a moment my will had seemed to gain the mastery over him. He stared at me blankly, but only for a moment, for soon his light eyes glittered, and then as Kaffar came up by his side, my strength was gone. My hands dropped by my side, and unheeding the cynical leer of the Egyptian or the terrible look of his friend, I walked into the house like one in a dream. End of chapter 7